an episode that has a message and an episode that gets a little bit too preachy. And uh, I think that this episode actually toes that line. Uh, I think that it uh, has something to say, but that it doesn't go overboard with it. You don't feel like you're getting knocked over the head with whatever it is that they want to tell you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, we got that reference the actual knock you on the head moment where Kirk actually references Vietnam. That may be a little bit too on the nose, but it doesn't take away from the rest of the episode. It's just that one moment. Especially because in our, you know, 2018 experience, Vietnam is not like this. I think about it all the time. It occupies 40% of my brain space. Right. It's just a reference. You know, so if Patrick Stewart in Next Generation made a reference to the Korean War, you wouldn't be like, oh my god, why do they keep bringing up the Korean War? You'd just be like, oh, he's making a historical reference. And it wouldn't be surprising if it was like, much like uh, the Tangier Crisis, or the Korean War, or the Battle of Zenton IV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you go, oh yeah, historical, historical, fictional, okay. <laughs> Right, exactly. But that's all the more reason that it's weird that he, like, knocks you over the head with it, because at the time this was filmed, obviously that was something that was on everybody's mind and something that everybody was thinking about. So mm-hmm. I guess he was just, I guess Roddenberry just purposely wanted to be uh, blatant on this one. But we'll talk about that. Oh, go ahead. It's, uh, I wonder, maybe you, you have some insight about how much of this stuff like that is Ingalls and how much of it's Roddenberry. Oh yes, I do have the I do have the uh, the, answer. the answer to that one. Yes, absolutely. But let's tease that for a moment while we do introductions. After Thank all, you. my name is Matt, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and from uh, Houston is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Hailing frequencies are open. They sure are. Uh, you know, um, before we get into the Roddenberry issue, what surprised me more about this episode is that it reminds me so much of the original script to Friday's Child that DC Fontana wrote. Now, if you remember in that episode, I had actually read the chapter before I had seen the episode. So that by the time I saw the episode, I was like, this isn't what this episode's about. <laughs> so what's really interesting is then you watch this episode and you're like, wow, this is like... Exa- almost exactly what that other episode was uh, was going to be, which is uh, really interesting. And uh, DC Fontana thought so herself, too. Uh, after the third outline was done, she actually wrote somewhere in a memo, uh, I wish this story did not bear such a strong resemblance to Friday's Child. Now, the thing was, it was completely unintentional. Don Ingalls had uh, written this episode 
well before uh, Friday's child had uh, finally come to fruition or before anybody else knew that that was an idea. So it's interesting that uh, there does seem to be so much resemblance to that episode in this one. And mostly it's just that, you know, we got the strong woman who wants to keep on living like she did in Friday's Child and, you know, wants her husband, the leader, to, uh, you know, be strong and powerful, you know, with her, like, running the gears behind behind the, the Lady Macbeth or uh, I know there's another one. Desdemona? Or, no, not Desdemona. But there's somebody who's always whispering in her, you know, her husband's ear, telling her, uh, telling them what to do and how to be powerful, right? Uh, really, the main difference between this one and that one, besides the uh, spooky voodoo stuff, I don't know, voodoo is not the right word, but whatever, uh, is that you know there's no baby involved and nobody's trying to kill it, so that's uh, that's big. So the script was originally written by Don Ingalls. Uh, if you'll remember, he wrote an episode, The Armageddon Factor, last season. And uh, it was so beat up by Roddenberry and Coon that uh, he was pretty pissed about it. But when they asked him to do another one, he's like, that eh, can't be so bad the second time either. He'd be wrong. <laughs> by the end of this, Don Ingalls felt that it had... Uh, his wasn't as preachy. His was just an adventure in a vacuum. And that uh, once Roddenberry did the final pass on it, he felt that that's what really made the big references to Vietnam and all those things, which uh, he was like, I'm fine with it. It just wasn't, again, what I wanted out of my story. But in the original story outline, as we like to go back to, Tyree's Women was the name of this episode. Ingalls' first try at the story outline uh, took, plan, uh, took place on the planet called Neural. This is as close to neutral as he could be. However, I think Neural reminds you too much of like your brain and stuff, which has right. nothing to do with this episode. And uh, the people were called the Neuralese. The Klingons in this story ob obviously represented the communist influence in the Cold Wars, and the Federation took the role of the United States. Uh, there was a line in this original outline that... Uh, is kind of poignant, but also shows you uh, some of what he was doing in the original outline compared to what we ended up seeing. Kirk at one point is comparing himself to his Klingon counterpart, and he says, well, I'm just like him, Bones. I obey orders. I hope my way is right. This little war has fought a been fought a million times before in a million different places, and it will be fought in, uh, a million times again. And there isn't a damn thing you or I can do about it. But in this little war, it happens that my orders are to help these people and to keep the other side from winning. And that's what I intend to do. Robert Justman, uh, much like Friday's Child, was not very fond of this script. Uh, he also didn't like the idea that Kuhn kept trying to bring back Kor, right? As, the, uh, as like this nemesis to Kirk. He says, here we are in the outer reaches of the galaxy, and who should Captain Kirk run into but Old Core, an adversary that he has encountered before and with whom he has been unable to get very far away from. Just think of it. Billions of stars and millions of Class M planets, and who should he run into but a fella he has had trouble with before? The Robert Justman didn't like that idea that Core uh, would be continuing his nemesis. There was even at one point later where DC Fontana was like, well, can we just make him Romulan so we can even make it a little less like Friday's Child? But 
Kuhn was uh, loved the idea of the Klingons and thought like, no, we should stick with them as our nemesis. It's interesting that we started off with the Romulans as our first you know, adversarial empire. And we haven't been back to them since. Because I think, you know, these, these guys, Kuhn, mm-hmm. uh, Justin, uh, but yeah, mostly Kuhn, uh, are, they like the Klingons. They always bring the Klingons back. And even when somebody suggests, maybe we should do the Romulans in this one. Nah, somehow it works out to be Klingons. Well, there's also the fact, too, Fontana said in uh, one of our past episodes, I can't remember right now, she said that it was also easier to do Klingons because to do the Romulans, to do the ears, mm-hmm. took way longer than just to do the makeup for the uh, Klingons. And it was more expensive. That's all you could tuck put everybody in helmets again. Well, that's true. So uh, they have Ingalls go back, do the first couple of outlines, uh, gratis, of course. Isn't that nice of them? Uh, after the third take on the outline, uh, Robert Justman thought, uh, oh, in the original version, it was uh, Kirk who got shot and needed to be sent upstairs. And then it was Bones and Spock who took care of uh, what was going on on the, uh, on the planet. And then uh, also, instead of being called the Mugatu at this point, at that point, it was called the Gumatu. It was G-U-M-A-T-O. And that went all the way up until shooting. But then poor DeForest Kelly could not say Gamatu to save his life. So they changed it to Magatu. Magatu. Which, of course, we know it as now. So, of course, he switches it. He has, uh, he was originally said, why can't we just have some no-name get hurt at the beginning? And then we'll have Kirk, you know, do this main big storyline here like we should and then it wasn't until later when gene ronberry stepped in and said ah we should make it spock that would be really cool well spock who gets hurt then we'll worry about him up on the uh, ship so let's talk a little bit about about this injury that spock sustains sure because normally we don't get to see any bloodshed somebody gets hurt mysteriously there's no blood yeah. But apparently, if you make the blood green, you can make this him so bloody, you're yeah. wondering if he's going to survive. Because <laughs> that was an awful lot of green on, the, on Spock's back. Yeah, it was. Must have been uh, a lot of it superficial. Although, from the sound of it, things were really bad in there, inside his body. Not only that, you, you mentioned the, the lack of blood and whatnot, but even later when... Uh, the crazy woman Nona cuts herself. You know, there's just, you can just barely see the red on her hand. Yeah. It's not like gushing blood. No, she, she gave herself a paper cut. <laughs> Basically. It is also around this third draft of the, uh, of just the outline, mind you, not even the first script, that Gene Roddenberry steps up to uh, the plate and says, hey, maybe we should make this a Vietnam allegory. And uh, he writes to both Kuhn and Ingalls, because Kuhn was really helping Ingalls along with this one. He was like, all right, let's, you know, let's really help you shape this uh, script here. But Roddenberry says, it is vital to this story, to the whole logic of it, that the Klingons attempt to preserve the illusion that all of this is normal planet development, that people with their gun, uh, that the people with their guns developed gunpowder themselves. Thus, if Earth people interfere, then the Klingons could argue that it was the Earth people who are upsetting the delicate balance of the world here. In other words, the situation is even closer to the Vietnam situation, he says. 
it was after then the fourth outline that Ingalls uh, put forth that DC Fontana wrote this. I have a lot of bones to pick with this script, aside from the heavy-handed writing. Uh, it is visually reminiscent of the Apple, I think. And if we can remember what happened in uh, Friday's Child, I was informed in fluid profanity about all the difficulties encountered by trying to shoot inside of tents. So let's not let that happen anymore, she says. So I think it's also thematically similar to the Apple. So the main theme of the Apple was that this was uh, a paradise, controlled in that case by a robot, mm -hmm. but it was a paradise. There was no violence. It was a utopia. Mm -hmm. And then the, the fundamental question was, do we allow them to stagnate in a utopia or to develop in all the kind of messiness that a non-utopian society would bring? Here, we kind of have a little utopia, but it's, it's more of a natural utopia and it's disturbed. So, you know, Kirk speaks fondly about how they're peaceful and it's wonderful. And now, this may be a little bit of nostalgia from, you know, his junior officer days. Mm -hmm. But, you know, even looking back without the hill people and the village people, you know, fighting with each other, probably was reasonably idyllic. And so they are, you know, uh, putting serpents into this paradise, as Kirk says at the end of the episode. Yes. So we do have this kind of destruction of paradise, uh, or noble savage uh, you know, kind of theory going on. Yeah. So uh, Kuhn continues to work closely with Ingalls. Uh, he's trying to raise the bar up on a private little war, which they have now changed the name to. Ingalls' second draft teleplay, so now this is their actual copy of the script, Justman says to Kuhn, uh, the script reads better than it did before, and for that, I thank you, he says. However, with that said, of course, here come the notes. While it is dramatic, I feel that the ending of this script is wrong for Star Trek. It offers the viewers no hope that things will ever be better for mankind. It tells the viewers that we are going to be making the same mistakes hundreds of years from now as we are making today and as we have made in the past. It will show them that we can never learn that the power that power begets injustice. I personally don't believe that we help our show either. This is about as a downbeat a note as we could strike to end a segment of this series on. One of the most important things we have attempted to say in this series is that there is hope for mankind and that things will go better for humanity in the future. We must not let Captain Kirk say, there isn't one damn thing you or I can do about it. Kirk must hold out and hope for the promise of better things to come. What are your feelings on that? You think the show should have ended on a happier note? Would that be more uh, trekky? Well, so like there's, there's two questions, right? There's, we're making Star Trek. And mm -hmm. should Star Trek, one, not cue so closely to an allegory to a kind of difficult, unsolvable problem? I mean, because one of the ways you can craft your nice utopia is you just don't talk about stuff like that, right? Right. That, that's one of the ways you make it look utopian is no one seems to be muddling over uh, injustices and poverty and, you know, that kind of stuff. You just say, it's all been solved. Handway, moving on. Look, it's Klingons. Uh, the other thing that you have is that 
it's not just that this is an allegory about Vietnam, uh-huh. but Roddenberry is clearly taking sides in, you know, uh, in a particular debate within the argument about Vietnam, right? So when Johnson runs against Goldwater in 64, one of the arguments is that Goldwater was too reckless, that he was too likely to escalate either in Vietnam or somewhere else in the Cold War, leading to nuclear war, hence our daisy advertisement, right? Mm-hmm. And that Johnson was going to keep a lid on it, keep it, you know, as you can imagine here, well, if they give, you know, 100 flintlocks, we give our side 100 flintlocks. If they go to 150 matchlocks, then we deliver 150 matchlocks. And if they go, you know, to, you know, 212, you know, uh, single shot rifles, then we do 112 single or 212 single shot rifles. We match them and we create this balance. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Johnson ends up with 500,000 people, you know, fighting by 1968. So they didn't keep a lid on it in that sense. But there was this sense of like, we got it, we can't, you know, we don't want to bomb North Vietnam. We don't want to attack North Vietnam. We don't want to counter-strike deep into North Vietnamese territory because we don't want to provoke a Russian response. And so that's the side, this kind of Johnson side versus the, what you might think of the Goldwater or the Nixon side which favored escalating. So, you know, once Nixon's in power, he starts, you know, bombing North Vietnamese cities. He escalates the war in terms of bringing the hurt to North Vietnam. And it's a different strategy. Now, in the end, I think Johnson's strategy proved to have failed. One, Johnson was unable to, to you know, win his own primary. Right. He lost to New Hampshire. He bowed out of the race. We ended up getting, uh, you know, the happy warrior Hubert Humphrey to be the Democratic candidate. Although, of course, you also get the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Whereas Nixon goes on to to get a Paris Peace Accords. He gets North Vietnam to sign. Okay, the war is over. You won. We're gonna we're gonna keep it the South. You know, free. Now, of course, immediately after that, Nixon gets embroiled in Watergate. Nixon becomes powerless. And whereas, because, you know, if you, if you time the, the, the peace accords, they happen right after the 72 election. Once it's clear that Nixon has won, the North Vietnamese are like, okay, we're done. You win. We'll sign. And then once Nixon is embroiled in Watergate, they attack again, right? And at this point, the Democrats hostile to Nixon, refused to support South Vietnam and South Vietnam collapses. That's the loss, right? Because mm-hmm. Nixon had won Vietnam in 72. We then lost it again in 73 because of Watergate. So, and we get the Powell Doctrine, right? Powell says, we're, we're not going to play this game ever again, where we, you know, match tit for tat. Okay, here's your hundred... Uh, Flintlocks, okay, here's your 200 matchlocks, okay, here's your, right, none of that. We're going to go in with overwhelming force. And so we get the the Gulf War, and, you know, so 
Powell's Joint Chiefs of Staff then under uh, Bush 43. He was Secretary of State. So his, his this thinking, this and of course he fought in Vietnam, right? Yeah. So the fact that, that this episode cleaves not just to the idea of Vietnam and the, the problems of Vietnam, but to a very specific argument about Vietnam, to the Johnson argument. And of course, we look at the timeline, right? So this episode comes out in February, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to have to consult my notes here. I'm going to have to pull out my glasses and curse the fact that, that Retinox, I'm, I'm allergic to it. <laughs> so the air date is February 2nd of 1968. By Late 67, we have 500,000 men fighting in Vietnam, 42% of which are draftees. By the 28th of February, uh, McNamara resigns. McNamara had been Secretary of Defense. He had overseen the escalation of the war. Um, in February um, 18th, you get a week in which 543 Americans are killed. Uh, 2,500 are wounded, which was highest numbers ever. People are becoming yeah. exhausted by the Johnson strategy of, we're just going to wear them out with, with attrition. We're not going to use... So one of the, the things that comes out of World War II is maneuver. You don't fight World War I style and just take attrition. That's stupid. Yeah. You use mobility, you use tanks, you use air power to create decisive cracks. And of course, that's not what Johnson's doing. He's resisting being decisive because he's going to provoke the Russians. And instead, he he resists that. We're gonna we're gonna be measured. We're gonna be. We're not gonna. We're gonna match, you know, musket for musket, whatever the Klingons are delivering. Mm -hmm. And you know, by February uh, and and March, Tet opens up. Right, the beginning of the Tet offensive. And right. This is the end for Johnson. Cronkite comes out and says, "Well, it would be honorable to sign a peace and just you know leave this chapter closed." And, you know, so, of course, not only does Johnson lose the Democratic primary by losing in New Hampshire and then withdrawing, but Hubert Humphrey loses as well. Nixon goes on, changes his strategy entirely. Westmoreland's out. Creighton Abrams is in. And uh, we bomb the North Vietnamese. You know, we penetrate the North Vietnamese territory. We have a strategy that's totally different from what Kirk is saying. It must be, because it's always been thus, and this is the only way. The only way, McCoy, is for us to match his, you know, instead they could do all kinds of things that he's not going to do, because they don't want to provoke the Klingons. They don't want to shoot down a Klingon battlecruiser over the planet and go, okay, we're done. It's it's Cuban Missile Crisis situation here. Right. You leave this planet alone. You let this utopia develop on its own. And by the way, we'll be collecting those sweet, sweet medicinal herbs. <laughs> yes. In the meantime. Yeah. I mean, so in the beginning, we find that McCoy is telling us, oh, this is a, this is a treasure trove of pharmacopoeia. So uh, I think it, it was really interesting that they took really the Johnson line on the war at this moment in which Johnson was collapsing. Uh, his strategy was being revealed as untenable. The American people wouldn't accept it. It wasn't winning the war. I mean, nobody was backing it, except for Star Trek. <laughs> well, that's what I was, my next question was. Do you think that is actually what Roddenberry's trying to say? Is like, yeah, there's only one way to do it, and that's musket for musket and tank for tank. 
Yeah, I think he accepted that principle. I, I think that he would have found escalation to be too aggressive. Because, mm-hmm. of course, you know, there's this there's this Roddenberry-like myth that the Federation's not even a military force. It's purely an exploration force that happens to do a lot of fighting because it's dramatic and makes good television. Right. So as I we think, find, as we yeah. find by uh, the season one of the Next Generation, you know, right. it's like if if everybody's getting along, there's not much of a conflict going on. Yeah, so I, th- I think Roddenberry really did kind of, you know, hope and believe that, um, you know, a less aggressive, more moderate, more measured strategy. But you know, I think it also, the long record shows that if you want to maximize bloodshed. You make sure that both sides are equally balanced and that it just because then no one can win and it just goes on forever. Right. So I think Kirk is basically maximizing bloodshed on on this planet. Yeah, there's got to be. I mean, oh, we'll, we'll get there. So uh, <laughs> Kuhn disagrees with uh, Robert Justman. He says uh he didn't want this particular episode to end on a happy note, feeling that the statement was more poignant with the uh, low-key somber ending. So Kuhn does the next copy of the drift uh, of the script, which becomes the final draft, which uh, is made in early September. However, it was also at this point, as we have learned, that Kuhn, uh, Kuhn re- Kuhn suddenly uh, resigns in mid-September, and uh, a Just private like little. <laughs> well, it was Roddenberry, but, uh, you know, whatever. <laughs> so uh, the script is then handed off to uh, NBC's broadcast standards, and uh, so they could see what was going on. Some of the dialogue, of course, not surprisingly, is ruffling some of the feathers at NBC. <laughs> Peacock, get it. A uh, September 25th letter from the BS department, which I also thought it was funny, it's called the BS department, told Lucas, that, uh, who is the new producer, right, who took over for uh, Gene Kuhn, that uh, they would not air the dialogue, which at that point closed the script, where McCoy says to Kirk, well, you got what you wanted. And bitter Kirk retorts, yes, I did. War that might go on for 40 years. Thousands dead. Development frozen. Yep. I might even get a medal. Lines like these were changed by Roddenberry with revisions dated September 26th, 27th, and 28th, ending just one day before the start of filming. So, uh, looks like you were right there what Roddenberry originally was preaching. Uh, looks like this war might go on forever. And uh, that's then when we get the ending that we currently get with the Serpents. So director Mark Daniels is back to record uh, or to uh, film this episode. He says, I remember that episode provided a problem in terms of wardrobe. The people on this planet were supposed to be dressed in prehistoric clothing, and we discovered that costuming them would cost a fortune. So Bill Thies, who is always adept at handling such crisis, bought a bunch of cheap sheepskin jackets, cut the (laughs) sleeves off of them, and then turned them inside out. We're always trying to work around things like that because of budgetary limitations, he says. So some uh, real quick notes here on the cast. We got uh, Michael Whitney here who plays uh, Tyree, Kirk's friend, right? He uh, is featured prominently in the big screen hit The Way West that starred uh, Sally Field, Kirk Douglas, Robert Mitchin, and Richard Widmark. I want to point out we've got a lot more Western casting going on. We talked about this, you know, kind of in the beginning of the first season. 
Right. But it's it's kind of their go-to casting is, you know, find a guy who is in a Western. Uh, he also had some other film, uh, awesome film stuff coming up. In 1970, he was in the film Darling Lily with Julie Andrews and Rock Hudson. And then took the lead in a movie called Head On in 1971. He then met his wife-to-be while appearing on her short-lived mid 1970s sitcom. The actress and the sitcom were of the same name. Twiggy. I didn't even know she had her own sitcom. That's ridiculous. Neither do I. Apparently, uh... And for those of you who don't know who Twiggy is, Twiggy was a famous model in the 1960s, one of the first supermodels ever. She was also very thin, hence her nickname, Twiggy. That's just in case you didn't know who she was. My wife tells me she was also on America's Next Top Model, so maybe you know her from there as well. Fashion icon, Twiggy. So this is something I've been thinking about recently mm-hmm. in other contexts, and I think it fits this episode. So, and, and it, it goes to something we've talked about before, Star Wars fatigue, right? Right. And I think a lot of early movies, early television, you're just trying to put some entertainment on the screen for an audience right now today. And if we keep the entertainment going, people will keep buying tickets. End of story. That's our business model. Right. And at some, pe- at some point, somebody makes Gone with the Wind or... Wizard of Oz or On the Waterfront, and we're like, wait a minute. We've made art. And then at some point, somebody, either the audience expects some art. I don't want to just go to be entertained for two hours, and then I walk out of the theater, I'm like, well, that was that was entertaining. Mm-hmm. I feel entertained. Moving on. Instead, they're like, I, I wasn't, I'm not still thinking about the movie three days later. <laughs> I'm not moved by the ideas presented. Well, why was I merely entertained? I feel let down. And so, and creators, of course, what do you want to be involved in? Do you want to be involved in 90 minutes of entertainment? Or do you want right. to create some art that people are talking about 20 years later? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be involved in the art. On the other hand, you get this problem where we become paralyzed by the art, right? Where everyone's pursuing, we got to make art. We've got to make art. We can't just make a movie. We can't just tell a story. Mm-hmm. It's got to be profound. It's got to have a message. It's got to be, you know, so well done that people are talking about it 20 years later. But that's, in one sense, that's silly because even if you are making art, even if you're Da Vinci and you're painting the Mona Lisa, you don't go, I'm done. Never again will I do a female portrait because how can I top this? I right. can't. It can't be done. Moving on. I'm going to go build a cathedral. And he painted more portraits. Yeah. Right? Because part of what he was doing was like, yeah, I'd like you to paint my wife now. That's nice. I like that. That's good. But I want you to paint my wife now. (laughs) And he's he's making money. He's paying the bills, right? Yep. And so, like, I think one of the things that people are bothered by with Star Wars or that people are pursuing in this, you know, desire for the art is... I'm unsatisfied with merely being entertained for two hours. Right. right? Somehow, that, you know, Star Wars was world changing. I mean, we're living in a post Star Wars world now yeah. of science fiction and storytelling and the, the mythic arc. 
you know, we're different because of that movie. You got to, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're not reaching that level of amazing, which of course is ridiculous and impossible, because, yep. you know, if we got a list of all the portraits or other paintings that, you know, Da Vinci did, we would all be like, oh, yeah, well, The Last Supper, of course. Well, what's next, right? Yeah. You know, there's going to be a list of portraits, and you're going to be like, I don't know any of those people. <laughs> I've never seen any of those paintings. Oh, look, they're right here on Google. I've never seen them. Why? Because they're paintings of people yeah. or other things. And that's, you know, you make a lot of stuff, whether it's episodes of Star Trek or Star Wars movies or paintings of women or uh, even if you were like building cathedrals all the time, right? Mm -hmm. At some point, you're just building cathedrals and yeah. not everyone can be Chartres, right? A lot of them are just going to be, well, this town needed a place for people to worship. I built one. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> I haven't revolutionized cathedral building again. Right. But these people have a decent place to like <laughs> pray and worship and do stuff. So that's what you're saying about the Twiggy show. The Twiggy show is just <laughs> another thing to throw up to so these people right. have a place to worship their TV. <laughs> that's right. It was, you know, an hour or half an hour, however long it was, of entertainment. Yeah. And that's okay. That's fine. Well, also, we're, something we're, we're, we're caught in this bind with this episode, right? Somebody right. wants to say something important. Somebody wants to be profound. Somebody can't just go, well, there you go. Here's an hour of fun science fiction. Plus, you know, you you got the 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 network itself, which is just like, oh, we got a half hour. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, oh, Twiggy's pretty. Let's put her on uh, her own show. All right, great. Well, I, I also think that off the air, we'll put on the Twiggy show. I, I think that it was more common then for advertisers to have a say in what was on television, right? Mm-hmm. And I can imagine it would be easy to go to an advertiser and go, yeah, we think we're going to make a show with Twiggy. And the advertiser would be like, sounds good. Yeah. People are going to watch that. <laughs> we'll buy spots. Yeah. So then we got Nancy uh, Kovac here, who's playing Nona. <clears throat> she originally started off as like the uh, Vanna White on a, a TV show, but it was, it was like Wheel of Fortune, but it was dealing with numbers. I don't know much more else about it. Um, but she uh, played Medea in uh, Jason and the Argonauts, and she was also in uh, The Three Stooges, very last uh, film that they did. She played Annie Oakley in The Outlaw is Coming. So she was in such demand in the two years leading up to her appearance in uh, this episode of Star Trek that she appeared in five different films, including uh, The Silencers with Dean Martin. And then she also had nine guest starring roles on TV. Which includes all the things we've heard of before, uh, you know, uh, Man from Uncle, uh, I Spy, FBI. She also took uh, two turns on um, the Batman '66 as Queenie. Uh, in fact, Gene Kuhn was so impressed with her work in this episode that uh, she made two appearances in his next show, uh, It Takes a Thief. I yeah, I thought her her. It's interesting. They got these two episodes, right? The Okay. Friday's Child in this one. And they cast these strong women, and you really get really good performances out of both of them. Mm -hmm. So we got uh, Booker Bradshaw here, who plays Dr. Mbenga. Uh, he's, uh, you know, standing in for Kirk, or for McCoy, I mean, while he's down on the planet. So 
it's cool. You you kind of inverse a trope, right? The the trope being our regulars do everything, right? Yeah. And no, we're gonna we're gonna have this guy you've never met. He's we're gonna label him an expert, and we're gonna leave him to do something important while we go away. Yep. But this is the episode immediately after they had that crazy blood transfusion business. <laughs> I know. I actually had that in my notes for later, but we can talk about it now. I know it's so, so funny. We got so we got Dr. Mbanga here, who's a specialist. He interned, uh, you know, at a Vulcan hospital somewhere along the way. Yeah. And where was he during the previous episode? I was suspecting that maybe it was perhaps because of what happened on the previous episode and in previous other episodes where suddenly Spock gets hurt and they need somebody who knows something about Vulcan physiology. That, you know, the Federation was just like, here, take this guy. Put him on your ship. You keep running into all these problems with your crazy Vulcan first officer. And McCoy does keep saying, if only I knew more about Vulcan physiology. Exactly. <laughs> and apparently that's where I was time to catch up on. I and mean, he's kind of Vulcan. <laughs> yep. So we, uh, so Dr. Mbanga, right? That's his name here. Uh, he had just uh, previously a doctor as well on the television version of uh, Tarzan, which is funny because his name was Badula in that one, and here it's Mbenga. So uh, that's pretty funny. You also have uh, Ned Romero, who plays the villainous Klingon Krell. Uh, he would return to the Star Trek universe in Journey's End, uh, and, which was a 1994 episode of Next Generation, and in The Fight in uh, Star Trek Voyager. So that's pretty fun as well. So I was thinking about how, you know, we have all these people who have all these like extensive credits and how they're being thrust into these roles of like, you know, the Klingon or, or Tyree, right? You know, you got all these famous actors. And so for a while I was thinking like, they must just look at this stuff and like, I don't even know what this is, but I'm getting paid. I'm going to do it. But I've really started to like consider the fact that there are a lot of other wacky shows on TV at this time, right? We just mentioned Tarzan. You know, we got Lost in Space, Voyage Under the Sea. I mean, even Mission Impossible from time to time would do wacky, you know, crazy adventures somewhere. So, you know, at this point, they just got to be like, well, this is television. We're just, you know, I'm some part of some wacky tribe somewhere, and this is what I'm doing. I'm not going to guess star Westerns, on TV without it. With all these Westerns, you know, there's going to be, well, it was either that or play, you know, Indian Apache Chief. Right. Or, you know, Comanche you know, warrior. I mean, if I can't be the sheriff or the doctor in in Dodge, they're going to cast me as Apache chief. So this is no different. Which is funny because the guy who played Krell actually has a couple of Indian credits on his uh, on his list. Also worth mentioning, we got Janos here, uh, Pro Prohaska. He was the guy who created the Horda back for the Devil in the Dark. Well, he brought uh, the Magatu. He had created the Magatu creature and uh, performs him here as well. I wanted to they, ask, uh, what, what do you think of the Magatu? I don't know. I mean, it looks like it looks like a white ape costume with an albino right. ape costume with like, you know, uh, Stegosaurus things on his back. I right. mean, it's it, it, 60s television. I don't. To me, this is no different than you know the uh, the what was the alien the. The one he fights. Oh, the Gorn? Yes. I mean, it's really no different than the Gorn to me. 
Well, I mean, it has the advantage in that we really only see it in one very brief scuffle. Right. And its role here really seems to be it inflicts a poison that takes Kirk out for a while. Mm -hmm. So much so that we break with our normal tradition of having a captain's log or a ship's log. We have a medical log. Yep. So our narration is is in this new format. I mean, it's it's the law. It's very clever. It's such a, a brilliant narration device. <coughs> to just imagine that we're going to go to the medical log. But Kirk's out for a while. Mm -hmm. Kirk's in jeopardy. Saving Kirk is a major plot, you know, issue. And so, I mean, you wouldn't get that. I mean, I guess you could have had him shot, right? Right. I mean, that was... We, we did have firearms take out Spock. We could have had firearms take out Kirk, too. Yeah. It would have, in one sense, raised the, the issue. So, I think... But this Magatu is interesting, because on the, you know... He's relevant to the plot, and then he creates this dilemma for Kirk, or this problem that Kirk has to... But on the other hand, it's kind of like, he's just... He only serves that function, mm -hmm. right? There's nothing else about him that's interesting. <laughs> You know, he yeah. comes on, delivers a poison, and leaves. If yep. this were a, if he weren't a monster, but a character who like comes in, poisons Kirk, and wanders off the stage, never to return again, you'd be like, "Who is that guy?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what was this? <laughs> but I guess because he's you know, a monster, it's okay. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, plus, you know, he can't have lines. You know what I mean? Uh, like, what else are you gonna do with him? <laughs> yeah, I guess he's sort of a he's sort of a MacGuffin in a way. He's like a walking MacGuffin. He's the one who gets the the uh, storyline going and comes back at the end, you know, to fight or scare Nona, you know, and another important moment in the in the script. So there's apparently an, a, a a a scene, and again, I don't know if they took this out for the special edition or if this was uh or. Or what? Or if I just didn't see it. But apparently there's a shot where they're shooting on location where you can actually see the building of uh, L.A. County. Oh. <laughs> the background. So it's like, oops, that was a mistake. Yeah, I'm sure in the remastered they can just digitally <laughs> fix that. Yeah, exactly. Just sky. <laughs> Hill. It's trees now. Pretty little trees. Happy little trees. So uh, Cushman also has this to say about William Shatner uh, in this episode. He says uh, he played the part a bit over the top. This director, Mark Daniels, with a sitcom background, was not good at pulling in the reins of an actor playing his role a little too big, especially when that actor was uh, uh, especially when that actor was the star. However, Nancy, Co Nancy Kobach did not mind Shatner reaching a bit for the stars. She said, I thought William Shatner was very underrated. He was wonderful, very professional, and just a lot of fun. He could be, uh, he could be played with, but he also had a lot of technique. I was very envious of people who had worked long enough to develop multiple techniques, the ones that he has and still has, and I love to watch that applied. So it was really fascinating to me as an actor to watch him work while I was there again and again on the, on the screen going, oh, well, there he goes again. Uh, but he's really terrific, she says. Mark Daniels was in the groove as well, says Cushman. Remarkably, he did finish this action-packed episode with uh, within the designated six days. 
And bing a bang a boom a just like that, the audio cuts out and we're left with nothing. Except for our backup recordings, which luckily we have, because we are smart. Unfortunately, that's going to end it here for this week. But don't worry, I'm not going to make you wait two weeks before we bring back the fun and exciting recap for you. That's going to come back in just one more short week. Won't that be exciting? Yes, it will. Hope you're enjoying your summer. We are enjoying ours. We'll see you all next week for part two of A Private Little War. (laughs) 